Dueling Genre Productions presents. Oh my god, do you see that? When a freak accident strikes McKinney City, ordinary citizens are given amazing abilities. I can move things with my mind. Oh my god, I'm flying. I can fly. I can teleport and I can fly. Super senses. What, like Daredevil? We are just playing fast and loose with this whole science thing today, aren't we? Now, there are villains. Billy, when you have an arch nemesis, do you just kill them immediately? No. You tie the ropes just loose enough so that they can keep escaping. That way, when you finally do win the day, you can sleep well knowing that you rose to the challenge. Your brain works differently than other people's, doesn't it? And heroes. Leah Markowitz, Gwendolyn Allen, Jeffrey Gibson, Mindy Gibson, Simon Holt, Splendid, you're all here. I'm going to make you all into superheroes. Screw it. Let's go save the day. The Powerful. After I drain everyone here, McKinney City will be mine. I'm going to show this whole city what real passion truly is. And the underdogs. You're all imagining me as a singing, dancing chipmunk right now, aren't you? The people in that store need help, and we can help them in a way no one else can. We have great power, which means they're our responsibility. I mean, Jesus, what's the point of having five freaking Spider-Man movies if we can't even learn to do that? Geek by Night, an original podcast series about five friends running a comic book store with superpowers. You're really going to keep running a comic book shop while trying to be superheroes? It might not always be easy, but I think the world could use a few more underdogs. Available at DuelingGenre.com and podcast apps everywhere. Dueling Genre Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joseph Dorowski, and this week I am joined by Henry Dorowski to talk about Jack Skellington and Sally the Ragdoll from The Nightmare Before Christmas. Welcome, Henry. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're glad to have you. And because we are talking about a Disney property, I believe producer Andrew may be jumping in a little (laughs) bit more than usual. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, for anyone who is unfamiliar, this movie was written by Carolyn Thompson and more on the writing credits in a little bit when I get to the trivia. It was written by Carolyn (laughs) Thompson officially in the credits based on a story by Michael McDowell, again, officially based on the credits, which is based on character designs and a story by Tim Burton. And it was directed by Henry Selleck, not Tim Burton, even though many, many people make that mistake. And again, we'll have a whole section about the credits coming up. Chris Sarandon voiced Jack Skellington, except in songs where Danny Elfman sang Jack's part. Catherine O'Hara voiced Sally. And this movie tells the story of the denizens of Halloween Town, led by Jack Skellington, who decide that they could throw a better Christmas than Santa Claus does for the citizens of Christmas Town, And they, they give it a go. Uh, and this is a stop motion uh, film, and it is just stunning to look at. So I guess our usual opening question, Henry, do you remember when you first saw The Nightmare Before Christmas? Uh, I have a vague memory of seeing it as a kid and being spooked out, but also charmed, I think, by it. And I don't remember much else. And then in recent years, I think I've watched it the last two Halloweens and I appreciated it much more as I've gotten older for its uh, artistic merit. Do you consider so, it a Halloween yeah. movie or a Christmas movie? Uh, 
for spoilery reasons, I'd say more Halloween than Christmas. That's where I lean towards. Okay. What about you, Andrew? The, Do you the remember perpetual you debate. Yeah. <laughs> it is like a stealth Christmas movie that you're allowed to break out before Thanksgiving without anyone giving you the stink eye. Mm-hmm. Well, th- I mean, that's kind of my, my top memory of it um, is you doing that for like weekend movies is like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do something guys. And it was like early October. And then you'd pull this out. We're watching a Christmas movie, but it, mostly you were just mockingly transgressive of the family rules. Yes, yeah, and, and growing up, uh, Dad was pretty firm on the uh, the Christmas as a no, no Christmas movie. Yeah, well, and they were kind of weird about it because they would say that, but then Mom always would say, yeah, no Christmas stuff until after Santa comes at the end of the parade. But we still didn't do anything until Thanksgiving evening. Yeah. Which is when we would watch White Christmas. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and listeners, for anyone who is curious, uh, Henry Dorowski is my nephew. So this is nephew Henry <laughs> joining us. Probably should have mentioned Which... that a bit earlier. This is not yet another Dorowski sibling, as I believe Chris Maverick has wondered uh, how, how many of us exactly there are. Former guest has mentioned that to us. Um, I remember the movie coming out, and I did not see it in the theaters. I was probably too young for... Um, for for when it had come out, or or I mean, we didn't go see the movie out to the movies terribly often because there were a lot of Dorowski siblings, and that that is a to do uh, to get everyone out to to a movie. But I remember for some reason that Henry, your dad, my oldest brother Adam, saw it, and he told me about some parts of it that stuck in my head, like the scientist opening up his skull and scratching his brain when he's thinking, um, <laughs> like that. That his description of that was somehow ingrained in my head and i also remember reading from a school book fair we got a junior novelization of i mean i a novelization but you know for for young readers of nightmare before christmas and i remember reading that before i ever saw the movie all right uh, a bit of trivia about this one and this this one deserves lots of trivia so tim burton worked <laughs> Disney animation in the early 1980s. This was before he became a feature film director. And while he was working for Disney, he wrote a three page poem titled the nightmare before Christmas. And he did some character sketches and designs, and they made some movement to getting it adapted into a TV special. But eventually Disney just said, this is too weird for the Disney brand. (laughs) And then Disney uh, Burton left Disney animation and he became a feature film director, but he kept thinking about that nightmare before Christmas project that he had doodled down at some point in his past. And he discovered that Disney actually still owns the rights to it because if you come up with an idea while you work for Disney, odds are Disney owns the rights to that idea. And uh, eventually after Burton and his visual aesthetic had become more mainstream with, um, well, his first feature film was Pee Wee's Big Adventure, but then uh, with Beetlejuice and uh, Batman, and I think Edward Scissorhands is before this, uh, Disney thought audiences were more ready for this aesthetic, so they decided that they would collaborate with Tim Burton uh, to make a stop-motion film, but Henry Selleck would, be, would do the actual directing, which gets into some of the messy credit stuff that's coming up. So at this point, Michael McDowell gets approached to adapt Tim Burton's three-page poem into a screenplay. But he and Burton had creative differences, but he wrote enough that he gets credited with a story credit. They committed to making this idea into a musical. And so Tim Burton and Danny Elfman talked and they laid out a storyline 
with all the beats that were going to be filled in by Danny Elfman's songs. So at this point, a lot of the story is actually being built with the anticipation of what the music will be. Uh, and then Caroline Thompson gets brought in to fill in everything uh, that hasn't been filled in by this kind of outline and music script into an actual screenplay script. But boy, are there differences of opinion on who contributed what to the film <laughs> and the story. And, um, and and then adding into the confusion, uh, Disney uh, trying to ride the popularity of Tim Burton and his visual aesthetic marketed it as Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, though he wasn't the director, which has led to many people believing he is the director. And the credits on this are one of the messiest things that I've come across in doing this podcast. <laughs> Um, aesthetically, and this is true of a lot of Tim Burton stuff, but very specifically, the design of Halloween Town is German expressionism. If you ever take a film class, you will watch The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and get yes. an eyeful of German expressionism. And it is amazing. Just imagine the most Tim Burton-y Tim Burton and uh, German expression was doing this in silent film in the 19-teens. And it is pretty awesome to see. I mean, I mean, I'm a huge fan of silent era German expressionism. I mean, oh, who isn't really? You're you're suggesting the most Tim Burton-y of the like kind of dark, creepy Tim Burton stuff because his not dark and creepy stuff doesn't hardly have a shade of German expressionism. Yes, like uh, leaning into his Edward Scissorhands and his Beetlejuice uh, kind of kind of look, and, and his Batman too. Yeah, like mm-hmm. like Big Fish, he only does half German expressionism. Yes, <laughs> half and magical big eyes, realism. Very little German expressionism. Yeah. Um, I won't be surprised if the upcoming live action Dumbo has some German expressionism <laughs> seeping into it. Um, but it, it, it contrasted with Halloween town, Christmas town is very much supposed to be Dr. Seuss surrealism. So they, uh, they're both very ex- exaggerated, non uh, realistic worlds, but there there's different aesthetics that are on display that when you stop and look at them, they, they do feel somewhat like they don't belong in the same film, which was obviously a deliberate choice there. For the stop motion work, they built over 200 puppets um, and the character of Jack Skellington had over 400 heads to provide the expression and mouth movement. So they would just take off his head and pop it on to move his mouth and eyes as needed. Or I think looking at the special features, some of it was also just popping out the, the eyes entirely and, and plugging in ones that had different uh, bends or, you know, levels of how closed they were and things like that. Um, Disney, However, so as this is in production, they get a little nervous about how macabre this film is. And so <laughs> it actually originally is not released as a Disney film. It is released as Touchstone, um, which was a Disney company, but it was where they put stuff that they didn't want to tarnish the Disney brand with. They, they, they didn't feel like, um, you know, uh, blended well with the very family friendly established Disney brand. Yeah, Anything that didn't match that was, was a touch, Touchstone pic- uh, picture. Yeah, it's a branding um, mechanism. Absolutely. Um, Most studios however, have some. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, and for a while there, I, they dropped this one in the 90s, I think. But for a while, there Disney even owned one where they would release their R-rated films. I think uh, they had, they had uh, Miramax, didn't they? I don't think it was Miramax. Cause, uh, but I'm I, not sure. I, I can't remember. I, I know sure Disney had Miramax at some point, but um, I don't know if that was the purpose of it. Yeah. But you may have noticed that this film has become a bit of a cult classic. And Disney is not as nervous about <laughs> the associations as it once was. All of Disneyland gets a, uh, a Nightmare Before Christmas makeover from Halloween. Well, not all of Disneyland, but chunks of Disneyland get a Nightmare Before Christmas makeover between October and December. Um, and no, Disney has really, very much embraced it's, marketing it's, uh, opportunities of Jack Skellington 
and Sally, as has Hot Topic, if you've ever been into a Hot Topic <laughs> Yes. Um, Hot Topic owes a lot to Tim Burton, I gotta say. Yes. <laughs> um, but Joseph, really, they do the Halloween stuff from like August, September into October. And then as soon as Halloween is over, it switches completely into Christmas stuff through December. Okay. They, they do a hard um, reset on like midnight, October 31st. Do, is, is Nightmare Before Christmas though one that that like doesn't the uh, Haunted Mansion get a Nightmare Before Christmas? Yeah, I think that's the over? the biggest um, impact it has is the Haunted Mansion gets a a, a pastiche of yes. Nightmare Before Christmas. But does that one hold the entire time leading up to October and through Christmas? No, I think that's just for October. Although I'm not sure, I haven't been there. Um, well, I've, I've been in, uh, in between. Uh, times. We took our kids there over New Year's. Super crowded, by the way, but it was still uh, Nightmare Before Christmas there. So maybe they hold that one over, but the the rest of the park should um, pretty thoroughly get the the Christmas treatment right away. Okay. Uh, The film has a 95% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, so it was well-reviewed when it came out. Um, It did all right at the box office. Disney, like, openly said beforehand, like, we're not looking for this to do Lion King or, you know, Little Mermaid numbers. (laughs) It's costing much less than those. Um, And it did all right, but not, like an instant classic it kind of developed the cult classic status that it has with home video releases and in 2001 disney began um talking about doing a cgi sequel to it but tim burton asked them not to because he said he wanted to keep the purity of the original however in 2009 selick said he would love to do a stop motion sequel if he and burton could come up with the right story to capture it and one other minor bit of trivia that i saw they recorded a patrick stewart voiceover that was going to be reading I don't know if it's exactly Tim Burton's poem, but it was going to be reading a poem at the beginning and end. It was going to bookend the film. Uh, but in the end, they they cut a lot of that dialogue and they just had the person who voices Santa Claus do the uh, the the poetry reading. Hmm. I have heard. I have heard. Uh, I don't know if it's rumors or just rumblings of people wanting this, but I think there's been at least some, some internet gossip about uh, a prequel focusing on Oogie Boogie and Jack's relationship before some apparent divide. Oh, I had not, I, I did not come across that in doing my research for trivia. The only thing that got explicitly mentioned was Tim Burton saying when they were talking about doing a CGI one, I don't want to see just Jack going into Thanksgiving land because we saw that door at the beginning. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, uh, again, mm-hmm. That could have it just like been a little more stories or something someone idea. wanted. Yeah, yeah, that, I yeah, think there's more there's... to that story than just the idea of Jack wandering through one of the other doors. Yeah, there's enough, like, there's some obvious depth in that relationship that I think we might touch on later. All right. Mm-hmm, for sure. <clears throat> well, before we move on to the full summary, listeners, we want to thank you for joining us and listening. We especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to special quick casts, which have been on pause, but will be coming back very soon. There was a, uh, a hiccup when Todd left <laughs> getting the quick casts out, but we're planning on getting those going again. And those are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers or TV shows and also give updates on our fantasy box office, which is still going. And I have retaken the lead. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. All right. Uh, now the long summary, which this film is... I think barely 80 minutes long. So it's not going to be the longest I think summary less. I've ever had. I think it's like 
78 or something. It's, yeah, so this is not yeah. the longest summary I've ever had to work my way through. With a rousing Danny Elfman song, we are introduced to have Halloween Town, a macabre and spooky collection of monsters who delight in the creepiest aspects of Halloween. Jack Skellington is the pumpkin king, and he spends each year devising the next year's Halloween celebration. So Halloween ends and Jack Skellington is in charge of planning the next year's Halloween celebration. This, um, this year's holiday is declared a complete success, but something about it feels hollow for Jack. He's not as excited as all the townspeople are. We also meet Sally, the ragdoll, who is the creation of a mad scientist who keeps her locked up to do his bidding, but she keeps escaping by poisoning him and knocking him out. Um, Jack, wanders away from everyone's um, like there's an award ceremony for Halloween <laughs> and uh, the vampires have just won most blood drained in a single night. And Jack wanders away to be very emo and lonely in the cemetery. Um, he goes and he summons his ghost dog zero from the graveyard. And Sally is actually watching him as he sings a monologue about how his, his, something feels wrong um and and he's not he doesn't even know what it is he wanders into the woods where he discovers a bunch of trees and each tree has a door with the shape of a holiday symbol on it and jack opens a christmas tree door and then he finds himself sucked into a snow-covered city and he is wonderfully curious about everything that is new and different that he sees it's so unlike halloween town it's just invigorating for him and jack goes back to halloween town where he calls a town meeting to try and explain Christmas town to the monsters of Halloween town, but they don't really get it uh, to excite them. He makes some parts of Christmas sound scarier and spookier than they really are. Like Sandy claws. Um, he makes it seem like this is a big menacing red figure with claws. And he tells them that they are going to make a Christmas celebration for Christmas town. And he starts out signing out jobs. Um, Sally tells Jack, this is a bad idea. Uh, but Jack waves this off. And he goes and asks the scientist, the one who made Sally, to Frankenstein up some reindeer. And he asks Sally to make him a red Santa outfit. And he asks some kids, or I believe Lock, Stock, and Barrel are the names of the kids, to go and kidnap <laughs> Santa Claus. And uh, those kids go off, and they they uh, hang out with Oogie Boogie all the time. And you just get the sense that Oogie Boogie is like a next level bad guy. In Halloween Town, he is kind of the monster's monster. Everyone's a little creeped out by Oogie Boogie, except these three kids who hang out there uh, with him. And the Lock, Stock, and Barrel go, and they kid or well, they come back from their task with the Easter Bunny. And Jack apologizes to the Easter Bunny and tells them to take the Easter Bunny back and go through the door with the tree on it and try again. And this time they do come back with Santa Claus, and Jack is very delighted to meet Santa Claus. Jack tells the boys to keep Santa safe, but they ominously plan among themselves away from Jack to take Santa to Oogie Boogie. Meanwhile, creepy toys have been made. The skeletal reindeer are alive, and Jack plans to deliver his gifts to Christmas Town. Sally is sure this is going to go wrong. This is not what they should be doing. So she tries to sabotage the trip by adding fog juice to the city well, which makes it very misty and atmospheric. Uh, and Jack knows he's not going to be able to fly. But if you know your Christmas stories, there is a solution to this very problem. Zero, the dog, has a glowing red nose. And so like Rudolph, Zero saves the day or ruins it, depending on your point of view. <laughs> because uh, Jack goes to Christmas Town, where he begins delivering shrunken heads and vampiric dolls and snakes. And he freaks all of the children of Christmas Town out. Parents are calling uh, the police. The police start trying to capture this 
Santa impersonator who is ru- ruining Christmas. And eventually they shoot Jack and his sleigh out of the air. Uh, the military comes in and actually <laughs> shoots him down. And he falls out of the sky and he lands in the arms of an angel statue in a Christmas town cemetery. And he wakes up and realizes that he's sort of blown things. So he races back to Halloween town to get Santa Claus back because Santa can make Christmas right. But Santa is trapped with Oogie Boogie. And Jack and Oogie have a fight showdown. This is some of the best um, stop motion. Like when I watch this sequence, I kind of find myself asking as much like, how did they do that as enjoying the scene? Yeah, it's Um, the it's probably the most fluid and it really needs to be so much motion on in all the levels where it's like they had to remember to move. So many things, like yeah, not just Jack like, Skellington, but he's on a rotating board and the background and, is spinning the, in the other directions at certain points. And the playing cards have Knives like three swords. Around. Yeah, three swords each. And there's, you know, gunmen coming up with bouncing arms. Yeah, it's it's a pretty fantastic bit of um, creativity that's on display right there. Um, but Jack, of course, wins and he frees Santa and he asks Santa if there's still time to save Christmas. And Santa says, there's always time to save Christmas. And so Santa goes back to Christmas town and he makes things right. And as Jack realizes that Sally was right all along and maybe she is the change he needed in his life. Santa flies over Halloween town and makes it snow and Jack and Sally hold hands as they recognize their mutual attraction and snowflakes fall over the cemetery. The end. I've, I've got a couple questions, Joseph. Go ahead. You refer to Christmas Town a lot as the space where Jack does his his business of impersonating Santa. I think that's just the world. I think that's just England. Uh, well, no, there's a big sign. He runs into a pole and it says Christmas Town over it. Yeah, but that's only when he approaches Santa's town. I think I think the like magical holiday towns have access to the world. Oh, I always assumed he was going into Christmas town and messing up their Christmas. No, I, so I took it as he sees Christmas town. I want to do what they do. So I'm going to do that for the world that we usually only interact with on Halloween. I'm going to approach it at Christmas time. But there is also in the monologue at the beginning, it does say specifically, this is a tale before holidays had their meanings or something like that. Oh, well, that might be what's, what's your thought. I sort of tend to agree with Andrew because he okay. gets shot at by the police, and I don't think yeah, uh, like, Halloween time is any sort of. This, it seems this much like, more in the real world than any of the uh, magicalness of any of the holiday towns. I am absolutely quite willing to I be mean, wrong on this. I just I've always read it as, or seen it as he's going into Halloween Town and doing his stuff there, and 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 he goes to Christmas Town, and all of that is Christmas. Oh, yeah. They just have the one Christmas. Yes. Yeah, just like um, Halloween Town has one Halloween that they get excited about. Then I wonder why Christmas Town has so much anti-aircraft artillery in place. Well, I, I, you, you're raising a valid point, Andrew, and I'm sure <laughs> listeners are probably going to agree with you. I, I'm completely willing to be wrong on this. It's just I always thought he was going back through the door into Christmas Town. Yeah, I thought the my I always took it as like that that Glen in the woods has immediate access to like the source of Christmas spirit, which is Christmas town and the source of Halloween spirit and the other holidays. But they all okay. also have like the long way around to interact with the world. That's how, that's yeah. how I'm going to go with it. Okay. Cause, okay. So the opening monologue says the story you're about to be told took place in the holiday worlds of old. You've probably wondered where holidays come from. If you haven't, I'd say it's time you've begun. So maybe those holiday worlds of old are what seep into the real world is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something like okay. that. All right. 
I, I, I accept your premise. Because the, the like, town that he flies over with its really substantial that military presence. Susian, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, well, yeah. It's, yeah. It doesn't really fit either. Pretty quick. It doesn't really fit either. And so it's, and I mean, the other thing is, it really feels like an, a, a uh, Great Britain town and not an American town. Well, there's definitely an, um, uh, there's still something kind of surreal about the way the town is being presented, I think. Yeah, but it, like, it feels, um, it certainly doesn't feel like it's from the 90s. It feels kind of closer post-war, um, 1950s, (laughs) but, but bleaker. Maybe the middle of the war, and that's why they have anti-aircraft guns all just ready to go. It it could be 1940s. (laughs) Could be. No, I, uh, I, I am fine with this, uh, this new interpretation. I, it's one of those things I've never talked about that beat with anyone. I think everyone just talks about the aesthetics of Nightmare Before Christmas, which I, in breaking down the story, so much of it is in these fantastic, um, surreal dolls and the way they move with the stop motion and the backgrounds that all have that mm-hmm. German expressionism. And and we should say, it's where pretty, a pretty lot of foundational comes from. Pretty foundational for stop motion in general. I think. Um, I don't. I mean. Leica wouldn't be doing what it's doing with things like Kuba and the Two Strings if Nightmare Before Christmas hadn't done this. Uh, yeah, I'm, so there's certainly Henry Selleck has gone on and we still get things like um, Corpse Bride and Coraline that feel very much uh, in this vein. And I think Leica, like you said, um, the ones who do Box Trolls and Kuba and the Two Strings, um, it, it feels closer to this than something like Ardman animation. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is not Rankin Bass. No, yeah, and all of these uh, Ardman uh, <laughs> and and Henry Selleck stuff and uh, uh, um, Leica Studios; those are all very different than Rankin Bass uh, stop motion. Yeah, so it it definitely set a trend for um, like the evolution of the last twenty years of, of stop motion animation. Henry, what uh, when we talked about having you on, and I said, "Is there is there a Christmas thing you want to talk about?" Because we're coming up on December, and you you picked this one. What about this one uh, stood out for you that you chose Nightmare Before Christmas? Um, I to be honest, it's probably mostly in the aesthetics. Like you said, everyone talks about. Um, I just I wasn't as familiar with it as some other things, and I know you guys had already talked about It's a Wonderful Life, which is my favorite Christmas movie. But uh, just I the the way it looks and the way it moves and the colors and how vibrant and deep they are and how muted they are in the Halloween scenes. They'd like, I don't know. It's something that really appeals to me, I think. And I think uh, Jack's character arc is quite interesting. I think those are the main things that attract me to the work. I think that's all fair. Um, and the, the character sign is great. One one interesting I did come across just in, I didn't put it in the trivia, but originally Jack's suit was pure black. That's how it had originally been drawn by Tim Burton. But they found that that didn't work for stop motion. You needed the lines, the white lines mm-hmm. that get added. You know the version that we know mm-hmm. um, to really be able to appreciate what's what's going on. And I think particularly with all the muted colors of Halloween Town, pure black would have been lost very quickly. Right. Well, and they and they managed with doing you know a black and white striped suit to not make it look like they're mimicking beetlejuice which is pretty impressive yes because i'm sure uh that that was very much um in the you know the known 
visual rhetoric of the of the moment. Uh, yeah, maybe not quite as prominent now, but when this was being done, yes. Yeah, they they had to avoid getting into the Beetlejuice territory, or else, you know, they they wouldn't have any of their own charm. Uh, do you have any favorite character designs, Henry? Um, Oogie Boogie is great, and I really love Lock, Stock, and Barrel. <sighs> um, Santa is fatter, I think, in this story than I think <laughs> most other Santas are. It's it's like, really kind of disturbing how small his ankles are, like his feet and ankles, yes. and his his hands and wrists, like really small. Yeah, he looks like a bell that's walking around. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, and also uh, the the mayor of Halloween Town I, and his switching I face really is enjoy, great. I really enjoy the mayor. I, there's a line from that novelization I remember reading as a kid that still sticks with me. I don't know why, but it just said, when, in introducing the mayor, it said, like most politicians, he's two-faced. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Which is not a bit of political commentary you get in the movie. They just stuck it into the novelization. But I'm sure that was part of the inspiration for for that look. I mean, all the characters are really distinct. Some of them you just get a better look at than others, I would say. Like the witches and the vampires, you don't really get a lot of attention on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they, even though there's like the trio of vampires and there's two witches, they, they look very different from each other. Like there was mm-hmm. definitely care in making sure everyone is um, distinct uh, and unique. Um, in the scene when Jack is singing about Christmas and trying to make all the monsters get excited about celebrating Christmas, there's one monster that I don't remember seeing it anywhere else in the film. I'm sure it must have been because you don't build a puppet for this and not use them in the crowd scenes. Mm-hmm. But it looks like a little old lady with curly hair, but she has a monstrous face. <laughs> and, <laughs> I, I, the way I remember it, is it even looks like she's knitting. So just imagine kind of a plump old woman that's knitting and, you know, kind of hunched over like that. And when I saw that one, I was like, oh, that is a great design. I think that, that should have been more front and center in some of these some of these sequences. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Um, Henry, you mentioned that you like Jack's character arc. For me, watching it, I actually got a little more interested in Sally and, um, and the when I was preparing for this discussion. The way that they um, intersect, I think I think there's some interesting things that are being done in statements about um, kind of a you know a feeling of malaise and how you react to it and how you try and push forward and try and something new. Um, but let's let's talk about Jack first, and then we'll circle back and talk about Sari and maybe do a little compare and contrast uh, between those two. So what are the major beats that you see for Jack's character arc? Well, obviously, I think he suffers a bit of a – it seems to be like a midlife crisis as he has the, the song is called Jack's Lament and, you know, sings and basking in the moonlight. Um, you know, there's something empty inside me, and he's really tired of this repetition of each year. Their whole purpose is to put on Halloween and then they have to wait uh, 364 days, then put on Halloween again. Um, just gets, I think, pooped out of that. And uh, and he's really good at what he does. So he has this role that right. he has excelled at, but it's starting to feel mundane, right? Mm. What's the point? Yeah. And then uh, I think it's just something really interesting to try to go against – you know, Jack is Jack Skellington, you know, he has a skeleton head, he's 12 feet tall, uh, to go against kind of his nature and to try to be an emblem of joy um, and hijack Christmas Town, I think is something that's 
interesting and I think it's sort of, I don't know, almost relatable that, you know, you are one thing and you'd like to be something else, but you kind of can't. So but, when, yeah, when Joseph was talking about it in the um, summary, I started thinking about it and I started, I, I was almost wondering like by the end of it, the like message for Jack almost becomes, you know, stay in your lane, which I was thinking about in right. comparison to I have that in the notes. It literally says stay in your lane. Yeah. Is, is that a theme of this? It's, with and, a question and, mark. And I, that's like a questionable theme because we've talked about similar stuff in high school musical where the theme is Rudy, like, you know, try things out and, and you don't have to stay in your lane. Like the status quo isn't always the best. And so I'm kind of like yeah, debating Rudy, his is father that gives the speech that says, like basically know your limits and stick with what you're good at. Yeah, like it's <laughs> and, it's, and it's fine to the antagonist. In it. It's fine to do what everyone around here does. You know, making steel is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's sort of a question of like, is the end message like stay in your lane, Jack, or is it you know do it right when you're trying to expand? Well, he certainly is reinvigorated when he comes back to it. Like he's re-energized. He yeah. is excited again to be the Pumpkin King. Like he re- he recognizes that that is his calling, and he had allowed it to become mundane, and he was not putting his whole effort into it. Yeah, and, and so now it was that sort he's going to put him. that effort into it, uh, I think yeah, now it's coming internally. Whereas before it was like this external pressure to keep doing the Pumpkin King, and mm-hmm. because he took some time to you know do a little self care, go try something else, <laughs> take a vacation, he realized right. no that I was where I belong and I want to really embrace that role. Yeah, I think part of it is like he like he's he is the pumpkin king. He's going to be the best at doing Halloween if he tries or not. He's go he's going to excel at it. And what he realized was he hadn't really been trying. He hadn't been challenging himself. And where I think this gets kind of interesting is actually um, in that contrast with Sally, where at the very beginning, when we first meet Sally, she's trying to break away from her creator, right? It's kind of like the adolescent, you know, trying to, uh, to, to break out and be her own person and not just be in the shadow of her, of her, her father in this case, because he, he just sewed her together and gave her life. Um, and he tells her, at a certain point, he says, you just need to be patient to find your place. And she says, I don't want to be patient. And to me, that sounds more of what we expect Jack to be. Like, I don't mm-hmm. want to be patient. I, I have this thing I love. I just want to go do it. Um, because she almost um, changes very quickly from saying, I, I, I don't want to be patient about living my life with you until later on when something new and different can come along. I want to break free. But then she sees what Jack is doing. And she has, you know, be it feminine intuition or a very... Uh, deliberate message from the gods that says <laughs> this this shouldn't happen that jack shouldn't try and take over christmas um she has this vision and she's the one that starts to say we need to slow down which um you know kind of contrasts with her own statements a little bit ago um and then she ends up kind of helping inspire jack to be you know re-energized um at the end mm-hmm and Santa says at the end, uh, she's the only one with any sense in this place, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, it, why do you think it is uh, that, I mean, if, if we're going to try and understand Sally's motivations. So she really wants to break away. Um, she's willing to poison her creator and she's willing to let her own, uh, own arm get ripped off so that she can break free, knowing that she can always just sew it back on later. 
right? Um, and so there's this kind of boldness about her. Uh, but then with that one vision of a Christmas tree burning, like, so that's the vision that kind of makes her say, maybe we shouldn't be doing this Christmas Mm -hmm. land stuff. Um, she immediately kind of becomes this voice of caution, uh, to everything. Is that, is it, is there anything more to it than just that vision? Uh, I'm going to say yes. I feel like she kind of changes, you know, I don't know. It seems like she has a experiences of fundamental change from wanting to get away to wanting to be safe. And I think it has to be something more than just seeing the burning tree. I, I think maybe what causes her to change is just her affection for Jack. Uh, is, but is, I, is her discussion of, I don't want to be patient and all of that. Is that before Jack's lament? Because she hears Jack sing. And so she like sees what is bugging him. Is her, is her malaise before she engages with that? Let's see. I'm trying. Um, I'm trying to remember scrolling. when she says, "You know, I I don't want to be patient." And I think it's actually right after. She... It is immediately after the lament. So she hears the lament, mm-hmm. and then um, she kind of whispers, "I know how you feel," to Jack. So she feels like she's found a kindred spirit in Jack, where you know mm-hmm. things aren't right and something has to change. And then she goes back home, and uh, the mad scientist, who I'm just now discovering is named Dr. Finkelstein. I'd look for it, and yeah. all anyone referred to him as mad scientist, but now it's I see this list as Dr. Finkelstein. Welcomes her back, and she says she had to come back for this, and he's, he's holding out her arm that had been ripped off. <laughs> and then uh, she says, I'm restless, I can't help it. And, she, and, and the doctor says, it's a phase, dear, it'll pass, we need to be patient, that's all. And that's when she yells, I don't want to be patient. Hmm. Okay. Because I'm trying to think, like, what changes between that moment and when Jack comes back and says, we're going to do Christmas different. And like, well, why, would, why would so she, she poisons she poisons Finkelstein again to get out to go to the meeting where Jack is having the meeting, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And it's during during that meeting. What like I'm trying to remember exactly what reactions we see from her because she's definitely there. Yeah, but like all she would be seeing is like excited Jack, and that seems like something mm-hmm. she'd be all for because she saw his and and like reminisced with his. His melancholy. Yes. Hmm. And then after I'm trying to say, I don't see any lines. So I, I just Googling, I found a transcript of the entire film. Um, when he is doing <laughs> Andy. the, that song, I don't see any, like she doesn't have any dialogue. So like the mummy say some stuff and everything, but she doesn't say anything. And then the next day is uh, when Jack goes to the doctor to say, I need some help running some experiments on Christmas to try and understand why this feels magical. Mm -hmm. Is it, is it the fact that he becomes obsessive about this topic? Is that what throws her off? Like this obsession can't be good. Like when he, maybe, maybe it was his engagement with Halloween seemed healthy and balanced. And then he becomes obsessed with Christmas to the point where he's he locks himself up and it's and she's not sure if he's, he's eating and sleeping adequately and like obsession is unhealthy. Therefore, this is going to lead to something bad. Instead right. of I like, think de- dedication versus obsession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think maybe her uh, her distaste with obsession might come from Finkelstein, whom she you know is always trying to is always 
doing something, I think, and is always like seemingly obsessed with his work. And, yeah, and he you know, seems unhealthy. Her. Right. He just seemed very unhealthy. Well, and, and all the citizens do the song about something's up with Jack. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so I'm wondering if it's, if it's about like the, the, the balance between dedication and obsession and he's tipped and she can, she can recognize that. And, and it's like, that's a pretty subtle topic to deal with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think we're more, we're reading subtext here. Like none of this is, is front and center uh, yeah. in, in the story of nightmare before Christmas. It's just trying to find that switch for Sally. Um, and I, I kind of like what you, what you found there. Um, cause she has that. Yeah. Th- so they do the song about something's up with Jack. He says, I've got it. We're going to make Christmas. Um, he thinks he's figured it out. And that's what the next interaction is. Ri- uh, she has that vision, I think at that point. And then he says, we need, I need you to make the costume. And she's trying to warn him the whole time. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it could be the vision on top of seeing the obsession building. Um, yes, but I guess the vision, it, it really is the turning point. Um, yeah. And then maybe uh, that like sparked her into realize like this is going to go bad. And then she looks at what's going on. And it's like Jack's going to go too far. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's she's just she also says that's just I have a, a bad feeling about this. <laughs> like it just feels yeah. off what we're doing. Mm hmm. Hmm. I like I've never and she also I'm skimming through the uh the transcript and one of the um when he puts on the the outfit um she says you don't look like yourself Jack and he says isn't that wonderful it couldn't be more wonderful and she says but you're the pumpkin king so it is like, like a concern about what what, she, what she's not know. just worried about Christmas going wrong she's worried about Jack yeah and I don't think it's I don't think it's as simple as stay in your lane I think it's supposed to be a like be true to yourself, and if you really did find your calling, it's okay to stay in your lane. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> well, and also um, embrace you know whatever it is that you're doing, embrace it. So like it, his his malaise about Halloween is because his his heart isn't in it anymore, and mm-hmm. and if he had been committed, he's reinvigorated and refocused on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, like it's it's interesting, and it's dealing with some like relatively subtle stuff because you could just take it as saying you know stick to what you're good at but it's not that simple or reductive um and there's also when i was poking around some people there's one article i read that i I wasn't really convinced by their claim but they they were talking about like is this you know the way that jack interacts with Halloween or with Christmas is that, you know, kind of a warning against uh, cultural appropriation uh, or, you know, things like that. I don't think it is, but I think there is something to that idea that when uh, more of like fan culture, when you discover something new and you become very excited about it and you try and force it on everyone else. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And then also I I think there's um, when lock, stock and barrel go and like literally capture Santa Claus and Jack wants to take his place. I think there's also, um, some of, I, I don't think this is a major thing, but there is something about that kind of um, the toxic side of fan culture where fans feel an ownership over the thing they love and feel like they should mm-hmm. be in control of its outcome um, and that it should only be done in a certain way. And they try and take over from the actual creators who are who are doing those things. Um, yeah. And so so he removes Santa Claus and wants to put himself in, in place. 
Yes, because he only he understands the way that Christmas should be because I am in love with this thing now. <laughs> I care the most about mm-hmm. it. I should control it. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, this, I, like, uh, in recent years, there's been, in the comic book industry, something called Comicsgate, and in the video game industry, there's been Gamergate, and with Star Wars Backlash, um, there, there's, we, we've seen this kind of um, sense of entitled ownership of fandom rear its mm-hmm. head when they don't like the direction of certain things. But I think it's also important to note, this is not a new aspect of fandom. <laughs> like, um, yeah. uh, Arthur Conan Doyle killed off Sherlock Holmes because he was kind of sick of the fans of of sherlock holmes and then he eventually brought brought sherlock holmes back because the fans were a little bit insufferable and also he knew he would make some money but he was <laughs> uh you know he he revisited the character basically because of fan demand but he had also killed off the character because the fans had been so demanding on him yeah and it was, it was so, a big pain for him yeah and uh charles dickens t- there's some quotes from charles dickens about about the annoy- being annoyed at times with the fans of his <laughs> his own work. Um, so I, I think there's something to that side of it for me a little bit more than the idea of cultural appropriation, because it's not like uh, Halloween Town was in a superior cultural position and had, um, you know, yeah, overpowering right, Christmas right. Town for, for decades and then picked up what they liked and claimed it as their own. Yeah, I really like the discussion of fan culture more than the idea that it's a narrative about cultural appropriation. Yeah, that, that one felt off to me. Um, but the, the fan culture one, I think, is is really interesting. Um, and I, I, there's a meme that I've seen recently, and it's like a two-panel comic. And it starts with someone saying, it's like, oh, maybe I'll just watch one or two episodes. And then the next one. And then I decided to let it consume my entire life. <laughs> and, 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 and that's, I mean, what, that's what it seems like with Jack, all of a sudden. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I, I think that is... Uh, I saw a glimpse of this other thing and it made me happy <laughs> and therefore it is the only thing I'm going to think about, talk about and share for. Right. And I think his uh, initial plan forever. His, um, the song, what's this? It might be my favorite song in the whole film. It just filled with such wonder and joy, but I think it is only there because his, uh, he feels so empty and mundane, just constantly repeating himself at Halloween town. Uh, the something mm-hmm. the sight of something new instantly causes him to be completely immense and or completely immersed and obsessed with Christmas. Yeah, yeah. I think um, going back to whether the message of this is stay in your lane or not, uh, I, I think it's more find your balance because he is imbalanced at the beginning and he's imbalanced when he's obsessed with Christmas. Yes, like he's, he's ping ponging between these extremes in an unhealthy way, and I think that's what Sally's picking up on. Yeah, there's like a healthy amount of variety and a healthy amount of stability that he needs. And he doesn't have it at the beginning or or until the end, really. Can we talk about Oogie Boogie? Yes. What do you guys think about Oogie Boogie? <laughs> What's going on there? So you're talking about like his very nature of being a like a flower sack that's sewn together around a pile of sentient bugs. Yeah, like, <laughs> well, I mean, there's there's that there's like the the in universe, like what is going on there? And then there's the questions of, like, what is his relationship to Halloween Town? What is his, like, because he's not in Halloween Town. He's part of the opening song for a moment, but, like, Jack doesn't like him. And otherwise, all of the people in Halloween Town seem to have a decent relationship. Like, Oogie Boogie and the three kids are the outsiders. Henry, do you have any thoughts? Um. Well, it seems even more so than, uh, 
all the other monsters that we see. He even, he seems to be much more, he takes a lot of joy in just being evil and he seems to almost have more fun with it than anyone else. Anyone else, everyone else is uh, evil for the sake of evil, but he seems to be evil for the sake of having fun almost. Like when he's torturing Santa, uh, you know, he's like gambling and rolling dice and throwing around stuff. I don't know. He seems to be just having the time of his life as he, you know, is on the brink of killing Santa Claus. I see. And, uh, yeah. I, I, okay. I've got a couple things. Okay. I got a couple things. So the kids, those seem like just human kids, right? They are not monsters, but they dress up as monsters, right? Mm -hmm. It seemed to me, uh, they're referred to as trick or treaters at one point in the, at least in the production notes, I think. I think they represent that fandom appropriation thing. Like you were talking about, that's what Jack does. Like he doesn't like the kids, but then he becomes basically what they are. He imitates Christmas and they imitate monsters. So you're saying these are three kind of um, lost boys who found their way from actual earth to this Neverland of Halloween town and latched onto Oogie Boogie. Well, no, I was talking more for like the, the metaphor of the story where you're talking okay. about like obsessing I'm and the actual mechanics of if yeah. these are just human. Yeah. So for the, like the in-universe existence of the children, I'm not quite sure. I wasn't really digging into that, but I was saying, um, you know, as we were talking about like Jack and the narrative of, like fan appropriation of the the work of fiction. Like those are just children who dress up like monsters. They dress up as, you know, a witch and a skeleton and a devil. But Halloween Town actually has witches and skeletons. So those kids dressing up as, you know, the Halloween Town idols is like Jack There's dressing up as Santa. There's a so, parallel I mean, here. And now I'm just really hooked up on the in-universe explanation of are they just human kids? I don't know. But nobody else wears a costume like that except Jack. When, you, when he's Santa Claus, right? Yeah. That's or the only other time someone... In, at the very beginning, he burns off a scarecrow costume. Yes, uh, like a pumpkin-topped scarecrow costume. And then he dresses as Santa Claus. But those are like the only costumes except for those three kids who are wearing masks. Everyone else isn't wearing masks. You're right. So I well, think there's something the with a tearaway face, kind of, kind of, <laughs> um, but I think there's something there where Jack has a dis- distaste for them because they're imitating something. And ultimately that is what he becomes is an imitator. Yeah. I, I think there's probably I, something I can to definitely that. see that. Yeah. Well, I, I want to circle back to what Henry was saying about Oogie Boogie and um, like his revelry in <laughs> The, the the sadism it's it's more like the the other creatures that we see it's more like this is their nature and they're owning who they are yeah right. whereas oogie boogie is enjoying uh inflicting pain on someone else uh whereas you know everyone else is just being themselves he is actively hurting other people for joy yeah there's mm. definitely a difference there and which the... ends up being kind of the darkest point that jack reaches is where he doesn't care about what he's inflicting on others. Yeah. And uh, like he's hurting Sally and Sally's begging him like, don't go, don't do this. And um, he's starting to do things at the expense of other people. And there is the, you know, the, the delivery of the presence. There is the turn that happens when he tries to make Halloween town appreciate Christmas town. And he tries to make them understand. 
Um, and there's the turn that happens where he says, well, if they're not going to understand, I'm just going to get them excited. So I'm going to make it sound a little bit horrible, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's not. And he like accepts that there's going to be, um, the, the, you know, kind of a perversion that happens in, in getting these monsters to embrace what he already understands of Christmas. It's going to be tainted. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and so uh, Jack in the, the box that scares kids. Well, Jack in the box that scares kids. You know, does he know that these are really horrifying things or has he somehow convinced himself in the end that he has tricked Halloween Town into making delightful things with vampire dolls that fly and try and suck mm-hmm. blood and shrunken heads <laughs> and a snake? Yeah. And I mean, I don't know where that all sits. And it could just be like, well, Jack doesn't understand the world outside of Halloween. So he thinks the things that people like on Halloween are the things that they always like. Right, I mean, yeah. And and so, like, there's a time and place for the Halloween aesthetic, and it's not Christmas Eve. Mm. And so, he okay, I mean, this is going back to one of our very first Christmas podcasts when we talked about um, A Christmas Carol and Charles Dickens, mm. and uh, there, there's a long-standing story connection. Yes. Uh, and and um, it's a ghost story at Christmas, and there's also, like, um, in, is it the Christmas song? Like, the, yeah, the some, something Christmas like that. Scary, scary ghost, ghost stories. stories. Yeah. So there is a there long-standing connection. More of a fear element associated with Christmas. And I think culturally we've just kind of subdivided, okay, Halloween, you get all the spookiness. Christmas, you get all the joy. And mm-hmm. right. and and uh, we're not, we're not going to blend those two the way maybe they used to culturally um, in the past. Right. Yeah. There's so, something to that. Uh, uh, to speak of blending them, there is uh, a note in the trivia that I was when I was reading up on stuff that Tim Burton says he first got the idea when department stores would be moving the Halloween displays to move in the Christmas displays and he'd see them both at the same time. <laughs> that was when he started to get the idea for Nightmare Before Christmas. Right. Hmm. It's interesting. We see how poorly they mix together. I think uh, it sticks in my head the most and it it's not my favorite besides the what's this song. I think it's just a 10 second snippet of Jack gives that kid the gift as he's pretending to be Santa Claus. And there's that awkward exchange they have. And then everyone comes down. They're like, what'd you get? And he just holds up the, the, the severed head. head. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's great. <laughs> yeah. Moments <laughs> like that are why Disney didn't want to adopt it too quickly. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. They had to let people say, we like this before they're like, okay, we will, we will Own start it. marketing Jack Skellington as one of our properties then. <laughs> Um, when Oogie Boogie dies at the end, this is just one of those like in narrative things where the rules of Halloween Ten aren't aren't laid out. Oogie Boogie gets his flower sack ripped open, ripped open, and we see that his insides are just all these bugs, and the bugs start falling off, but they individually are screaming lines of dialogue. So it yes. seems like every bug as one was part of the voice, and they fall into this goo. Um, is Oogie Boogie dead? Or, I always took that goo to be acid. Because yes, I think that's still, the, again, with the weird oh, logic of Halloween Town. Is he dead? Well, I assume a couple <laughs> of those bugs probably crawl away and then yeah. reconvene a new colony of Oogie. Iron Giant style? <laughs> well, not like re- recombining all the original pieces. They have to like collect new bugs and teach them how to be part of Oogie Boogie, I guess. 
But like they still like, the head cannon. consciousness escapes. I think like I, I'm inclined to think that his consciousness would escape. Um but again, I I'd be kind of curious to see what is kind of a prequel story about Oogie Boogie and and younger Jack and like what was going on? Why does Jack have such distaste for Oogie Boogie? Why does he keep him well, set off away from Halloween Town? Like Oogie's still included in that opening song as like the shadow on the moon, but but like Jack hates Oogie and Oogie is very much scared of Jack. And, well, and, and they are like at their extremes of Halloween. So like when Jack is the pumpkin king, that feels like the neighbor who like goes all out with creepy Halloween decorations, but that kids love to go see. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Oogie, it's like the really scary haunted house that you're not allowed to go into until you're 16 or older. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So that like both of those are still part of America's Halloween celebration. Yeah. But Jack um, is a neighbor and, and Oogie Boogie is the haunted house. Yes. Uh, but again, like the extreme form of the haunted house that you have to have parental signed permission. Yeah. Like the, to go into. Man, I was hearing about, I, I don't like haunted houses, but I was, listening to the radio and hearing there's a lot of haunted houses around us. Um, like uh, up, up by Salt Lake city. There's several like major, like nationally known haunted houses. And they were, you know, doing advertisements like, yeah, if you sign up for this one, the, the cast can like come up and touch you and move you and shake you. It's like, okay, that's getting like way too far. Like no I, waiver I is that. really like good enough for that. You can't sign a waiver. That's going to really, work for that there can't be no that's that's uh that's too far <laughs> yeah like i uh, i'm not gonna what oogie boogie would be all about yeah <laughs> like you, you don't go into oogie boogie's house without signing that waiver it's like no this is not like a, a guy with a fake chainsaw 20 feet away these are you know clowns jumping out of the trash can at the end of the hallway that's oogie boogie all right well henry had mentioned that his favorite part of the film is the song. What's this? When we see Jack's like open wonder about something that is um, pleasantly magical instead of eerily magical, like Halloween Mm -hmm. town. Andrew, do you have a favorite part of the film that stands out? I think it's Jack's lament. I think that's like the most iconic portion is him on the, the spiraling um, hilltop near a graveyard. Uh, and the, the and, visual of that with the massive, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, supernaturally massive moon behind him mm-hmm. and the, the little spiral ledge that un, unfurls, um, that is some of the great iconography that yeah. comes out of it. Both the original version when he's feeling all his ennui and and, and, <laughs> and, and the snow covered version and then the, the happy snow covered version at the end. Yeah. Um, so I think I think Jack's Lament is the part that I'm most interested in it and, and think about the most and just his discussion of like, here's where I am, but I don't, I don't like, I feel like something's missing and I don't know what's missing. Yeah, um, it, it's um a, a very nice tool of musicals that they can almost get away with like the Shakespearean monologues when the Shakespeare characters yeah. will stand and tell you what's going mm-hmm. on inside their heads in musicals. Like, they get to sing that and it doesn't have to be done through, um you know, this oblique conversation where the audience is trying to pick things up. They're just going to go ahead and state, which for kids in particular, I think this works really well. Here is exactly what is wrong with our main character. And uh, this is going to be the story of getting that fixed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And and I and I think the counterpoint to that is him in the graveyard after being shot down saying, "No, I'm the pumpkin king. I should focus on being the best pumpkin king." Instead of I'm yeah. the pumpkin king, but I I'm not feeling it. it. He him like switching gears. Like that's the song where he kind of resolves it in his own mind. He's like, "Wait, you know, I tried to be Santa and they didn't like it. Maybe I should try with all the same energy that I attempted Christmas and put that energy into next Halloween and make it, you know, as much better as I intended this Christmas to be. You know, that I'm 100% with you on the fact that somehow these holiday villages are bleeding into the real world because the, the Christmas town wouldn't have that cemetery. So you're right. I, <laughs> I've misread the film. <laughs> <laughs> uh i love both the opening number like it just sets the mood so well that this is halloween halloween mm-hmm. halloween like it, it's great danny elfman music and it sets the um the feel of of the movie like right from the get-go and then also the making christmas number i was gonna say you're gonna you're gonna say making christmas for the other half of that yeah um, I, I think that's where Danny Elfman was bringing the most to um, the the overall aesthetic of the film. And I, there's an energy to both those numbers that I, I quite enjoy. Well, and those are the most just, you know, this is pure music video um, numbers in the whole thing. The, like out of all the film, I think those two have kind of the least story to them. And they're yes, the most they're not purely music. The, the inner monologue of a character. Yeah, but they but they are catchy and purely music and and they still progress the story to some degree. But really, it's just saying we need a number in here and and Danny Elfman's just going to crush it. <laughs> yes. And, well, and it's um, particularly for the this is Halloween. Like this is we're going to introduce this world like this is this isn't going to be like any other animated film you've seen or any film with Christmas in the title that you've seen before. Mm-hmm. And this is how we're going to bring you in and kind of get you tapping your toes <laughs> as, as you come in through the door. Yeah. All right. Well, any final thoughts on nightmare before Christmas, Henry? It's really, really good. It's less than 80 <laughs> minutes. So if you haven't seen it, it's a quick watch. Highly recommend it. It is currently available streaming on Hulu is the streaming service that you need. If you're going to watch it that way. Or you can just buy the 25th anniversary edition. Uh, yeah, uh, which I believe at that point, with that one, Disney's logo actually appear, appears before the film now. <laughs> I think like, I remember the, the VHS we had growing up when I start, I streamed it on Hulu just because I couldn't find the DVD. I think my kids wandered off with it somewhere. Um, the DVD I have still does the touchstone, like the blue bar that like slides mm-hmm. over, that, it and then it slides over into a, a it little Hulu, dot. It was the it was the Disney Castle now at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Is it the the nineties blue Disney Castle or is it the modern one? It's the modern one. Was the one oh. that was streaming on Hulu with it? Okay, mm-hmm. um, I got I got the twenty fifth anniversary Blu Ray along with uh, the anniversary edition of Hocus Pocus. So. You've got your your Halloween viewing set for years to come. Yes. All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast on your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 161, when we talked about Kubo and the Two Strings, or episode number 51, when we talked about Elf. 
uh, that had a similar, you know, someone out of their element and <laughs> trying to embrace a new world. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod, at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at Disminute. And Henry, do you have a Twitter handle? Nope. Okay. Our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening. And we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. So long. All right, here we go. Ooh. <laughs> Henry, did you just drop something? No, I'm just uh, closing the door. Oh, okay. Good call, good call. It's not like a laptop yeah. fell off.